Alright guys, we are back. <laughs> Another episode of the Talkie Lead AK Corner. This is part 11 of our 12 part series where we have deep dove into the world of AK 47s. And I'm going to go ahead and introduce our guest. And this is a new lead head. He's actually been on the show before, a couple episodes ago, all the way from Utah. We've got Jeff Kirkham, ladies and gentlemen. Jeff is a 20-year uh, veteran as a Green Beret, eight years in Afghanistan and Iraq as a member of the Counterterrorist Direct Action Unit. He is an author. He has written a series of books called Black Autumn that delve into the post-apocalyptic world and, and how you would survive that. Uh, a series of other survival handbooks that he's done for uh, civilians and military. He holds the patent for the rat's tourniquet, the inventor of the rat's tourniquet. He is also one of the co-founders of the Black Rifle Coffee, Coffee Company. Black Rifle Coffee Company, I'll get that out. BRCC. Uh, and you guys are locally here in our backyard, I found out when I was in Utah. I didn't have to go all the way to Utah to visit Black Rifle Coffee. And the, um, is it creator of Ready Man? Is that how we would say that? It's one of the co-founders of Ready co Man. Yeah. Co-founder of Ready Man Media, Jeff Kirkham. Welcome in, Jeff. Hey, thanks, Marty. I appreciate it. And a longtime leadhead. He was probably one of the first people that we had on our, our seven-year journey here into the Talking Lead podcast, coming up on our 300th episode. Got our good buddy, Vince Buckles. Vince, welcome in. How y'all doing today? Vince was actually on our part two AK corner. As you guys know, we talked about parts and components of the AK-47. We broke it down and put it back together again with Vince. And uh, Vince is a former reality TV show star, as most of you probably know, and probably much to his chagrin, uh, he doesn't want you to know. <laughs> he he was on that uh, that TV show Friends, I think, a very popular exactly. Exactly. No, it, was, it was Seinfeld Chandler. without the laugh track. So if you watch Seinfeld without the laugh track, that's pretty much what I've been doing the last few years. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Vince is a fellow Master Mason, as is Jeff, I forgot to mention, uh, and a gunsmith extraordinaire, a 2A champion, and owner of Mesa Kinetic Research. Ladies and gentlemen, our good buddy Vince Buckle. Thank well, you. Glad, glad to be here again. You guys should should feel honored because I don't normally do intros like that. I usually make people do their own intros. Yeah, I hope I did. Hope I did you justice. It was perfect. It was actually it wasn't twenty years. It was twenty eight and a half years. But I won't hold it against did you. Did I say twenty? I'm sorry. <laughs> I wrote down twenty nine years and yeah, I, I read twenty. You said twenty nine the first time and twenty when you actually did the intro. So that's why you shouldn't practice intros. In any kind of like reality TV or radio, because you end up spending your good one the first time. The very it's first not time. <laughs> Son of a bitch. D, always record. <laughs> well, you told me I couldn't, so. <laughs> anyway, we got it right. The truth will come out. And uh, the truth is going to come out this episode. We're going to be talking about Jeff's background as a Green Beret, uh, being at Afghanistan and Iraq with uh, the counter-terrorist DAU. And his hands-on experience with the AK-47. And Vince has come out with his own line of rifles. It's the MKU, the MK Ultra. And is it AKM or AK-47, what we're calling this? Well, it's really 
really neither. Uh, it's uh, it's an it's a Kalashnikov pattern rifle, but it's uh, the the foundation of it is going to be the uh, the Sharps Brothers, uh, which also there's the Utah connection because they're they're out of Logan, Utah. Um, nice. Uh, the Sharps Brothers MB47 receiver, which which we got those early on when they started shipping them years ago. There were some early uh, pre-production issues that we uh, we gave feedback on, and uh, over the years they kind of got them to where we wanted where we wanted them to be to build a production rifle off of them. So the core of the rifle is is a Sharps Brothers MB47 receiver, which is a 4140 uh, billet receiver. So um, unlike a uh, AKM, which is a stamped and riveted rifle, there's only five rivets on this rifle. There's uh, the trigger guard rivets. That's it. Everything else, uh, the rest of the receiver is milled. So I guess it's kind of closer to an original, you know, let's say a Type 2 or Type 3 AK-47, mm-hmm. but it's a completely modernized platform. So I just generally call it a, a Kalashnikov pattern rifle. Um, I don't give it an actual model designation besides that that we've okay. signed. Fair enough. Fair enough. And and that may lead into some discussions as we were talking off air a little bit into some of the AK variations that exist uh, around the world. So um, I guess with that being said, let's let's start off with Jeff. And Jeff, let's talk about your experience with the AK forty seven in service. Yeah. So when when I you know I was introduced to the AK, I mean back in nineteen eighty seven when I first joined when I first joined up. So I went through special forces school in, in 1988 and then graduated in 89. But, um, so quite a while ago. Um, but fast forward 2002, um, you know, it, 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 the war, it, you know, nine 11 had happened and everybody knew we were going to, uh, we're going to war. And, um, at that time, SOCOM special operations command had a program where they were trying to feel the rifle that would, um, that, that would allow forward operating guys like long range reconnaissance patrol and stuff. They were, they were looking for a rifle that they could field that would take AK 47 magazines and shoot the seven, six, two by 39. And so, and consequently the, the rifle was horrible. It didn't, it didn't function. The barrel would fall, fell off in one of the tests. Um, AK, the seven, six, two 39 get, it burns really hot. And so in the, in the system that, that AR platform system is not well suited for firing that, for firing that round. And so with that, we came in and, and, um, they, they're said, Hey, you know, the SOCOM guy said, Hey, we need more money to continue developing this, this rifle. And, um, the Colonel that was in charge of the program said, well, why don't we just shoot AKs? And they, you know, and the guys came back and they said, well, they're not accurate and they, they don't have good ergonomics. And so the colonel that was in charge of the program, because mind you, the, the rifle that they were trying to field was about 5000 or $8,000 a copy and, and it wasn't working. Yeah. And so, um, you know, so this colonel was like, okay, show me, show me a, the empirical data. Show me a study that shows that this rifle, that the AK doesn't doesn't work because your baby over here, the AR platform is failing. And so they were like, well, everybody knows that. And he's like, well, I don't know it. Show it to me or I'm not giving you another dime for this program. So they scoured all of the archives, could not find any empirical data where the AK had been tested like in a, like a no kidding test. And so they, they brought me and another guy in. It was actually, he was a ranger uh, from Ranger Battalion. So it was me and this other guy, 
And um, essentially, when we got the rifles, the, the, the thing was, it was set up to fail. So we were testing accuracy and reliability at the same time, which you would never do. Um, the rifles were filthy when we got them. They literally, they looked like they'd been pulled out of a dumpster. Um, like a lot of the blowing was worn off. Yeah. Um, and they didn't want us to oil them. We weren't cleaning them. Um, and then we were also testing what was then the SOP mod kit on top of that. So we were testing lasers. Well, there were no rails for AKs back then. So we were zip tying this crap on because we knew we weren't going to take them off for the, for the testing. Well, as a pure accident, we, we zeroed the uh, 762-39 properly um, because everybody in the military, for whatever reason, they think that because you, you zero your M4 at 20 meters, then you, know, you, you zero everything at that same range. And of course that's, you know, <laughs> ridiculous. And so by an accident, not by design, by an accident, looking, looking back after we, you know, did the after action report, we had zeroed properly by the end of the second day of testing. So every round that was fired, there was a report written on that round. Reliability was our problem. Where did the bullet go? Was it accurate? Blah, blah, blah. And so, and, and when we had these rifles, we were shooting Chicom 56s with folding stocks stamped receivers and um so by the end of the second day um socom came back and said there's no way that those rifles are performing that well you're fabricating your results and so we had a we had a, a cw5 a chief warrant officer five that was validating the test and and the uh, yep there you go so the uh and the cw5 at that time in the military were brand new and, th- and they're essentially on par with general officers. And so there was like five CW5s in the, in the military at that time. The guy that was looking over our shoulder to validate the test was a, uh, was a Vietnam vet. And um, I heard him on his phone yelling at the guy back in Tampa at SOCOM saying, I've been telling you sons of bitches for years that this is a good <laughs> rifle and you didn't listen to me. And now you're calling me a liar. He's like, get your boss on the phone. And so – Needless to say, the the test continued. We blew out of the water all of these urban myths about the accuracy. We found it to be very accurate. We were shooting at night. Once we figured out the ergonomics with the rifle, there was no problem with running around with it. I would argue, I later argue in like the AK classes that I teach, that the AK is actually more ergonomic than the other platforms that are out there. And um and so that program, you know, by the end of it, SOCOM said, we're going to buy AKs for, you know, all of our operators, and it killed the SR-47 program. Now, which which model were you using, did you say? Uh, we had Chicom 56s. And where are those out of? Uh, China. China. Yeah, they're Chinese. Did you just hold one up a minute days. ago, Vincent? I, I held up the stock for one. I, I'm actually oh, okay. sitting right next to one that I'm rebuilding because uh, – the receiver was toast on it, so I'm actually rebuilding one right now. But it's uh, no, it's for, for let the record reflect that Chicom basically stands for Chinese Communist. That is a, a like a, a like a NATO or a U.S. Uh, designation for things of Chinese government manufacture put into military use by the Chinese military. So whether it's Chicom Claymore, Chicom Grenade. Chicom rifle. That's always going to be Chinese government factory stuff. Okay, so that's just uh, American slang for it was made in China. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily slang. It, it, I think it's actually. It's. I think it's actually uh, it was official NATO call sign at one point in time. Uh, I think that's where it came from. But um, but I could be wrong on that as well. Any input on that, Jeff? 
Yeah, I, I mean, Vince, I mean, it, he's right on it. Yeah, so it's Chinese communists. And then the 56, he pulled up the stock right. with folding, with the, uh, with a folding stock. I mean, they, you know, the Chinese, I'm sure, you know, Crane Industries were the guys that were putting on this testing. And Crane is very well known for testing throughout the military, especially with the Navy. Um, and um, so I'm sure, like, the rifles that we had were pulled out of some. You know, they probably came out of Grenada back when we, you know, did Grenada and brought all a bunch of AKs and stuff back from from that or, or or something. It was some surplus rifle, and it just and it literally looked like it had been pulled out of a dumpster. I mean, it was it was pretty tired at that point. Yeah, and you guys put them back to life. Well, I, I mean, we we actually because of the testing, we didn't need, we didn't even touch them. They were like, we don't want you to clean these rifles. We just want you to shoot them. We want to test the reliability and the accuracy, and that was the other thing that that we did prove was the reliability. So we were we were shooting out at Moyoc, which was the old Blackwater facility. So it's it's sandy conditions out there, and so there was sand and dust that was that was getting into the rifle and stuff. And we fired a total of three thousand rounds, and um, it was round two thousand. We had we had two failures to feed, and it was round two thousand nine hundred. In '97 and 2,999 or something, where it just didn't—I mean, the, they were so bone dry. And plus, we had switched the ammo uh, three quarters of the way through, and um, so we we had gone from shooting the steel case to they they brought in some brass case oh. stuff, and and so like literally just smacked the charging handle forward and, and shot that round. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was it, for me that was the moment where I was like. Holy cow! This is good rifle. I was like, everything I've been taught about this thing is is patently false, except for the reliability. Other than that, it was like this is this is a great rifle, and that's kind of where my love affair started with the AK. And then the the more I learned about it, the more I was like, man, this is just this is genius in its simplicity. Do you have any questions for Jeff Vince? Well, no, I just uh, I it's 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 nice to hear someone uh, who's done it. You know, done some actual scientific testing on the platform. Um, publicly talk about the urban legends or the old wives' tales, or or these things that we hear. That I, I, I I'm gonna go ahead and say I think a lot of that was propagated by the uh, uh, by the larger AR-15 manufacturers in the 1980s and, and 90s. Remember, there was only a few major manufacturers up until the late 90s that were doing ARs, and I, I think there was just a lot of there's a lot of BS in general. And there's really no excuse for any of that anymore because we all carry a computer in our pocket that we can look up almost any piece of information from the history of mankind. So there's no excuse for that anymore to have that kind of ignorance. But the society and the gun industry in particular reveled in uh, word of mouth ignorance for years of, oh, well, the AK is not accurate. Okay, well, get, there's even instructors that teach the AK platform to go, it's, it's never going to be as accurate as an M4. Really? Because I've got AKs that will shoot just as well as a Colt 6920, you know, which is a, if, if the 6920 is not a regular Colt M4, then why, why are they marketing it as a patrol rifle? So if it'll right. shoot as well as these patrol rifles that are coming, that these, uh, you know, deputies and troopers and whatnot are keeping in their trunks, if it shoots that well, and we've got all these, uh, modern accessories to interface with it in order to, you know, to put modern optics and, uh, a few modern ergonomics, mitigate a few of the, you know, the, uh, design issues that we've, kind of discovered over the years, it's, it'll shoot just as well as all these patrol rifles. So it's nice to hear somebody that actually did the uh, scientific testing and, and, and not even using a well-built U.S. rifle, but using, you know, this uh, this trash that uh, the, probably the last time it saw the light of day 
Barry Seal was unloading it off an airplane in uh, Central America. Um, yeah. So that's um, that, that's that's really nice because uh, it's it, it it does actually turn out to be a little more ergonomic than an M16 is, particularly when charging it from a position where you've just reloaded it with the magazine with the stock anchored against your side and the magazine well in front of your face. If you're doing a heads up on the move combat reload and you're working from what we call the workspace now in the in the you know American training industry um, if you're working from there reaching around and hitting that charging handle is so much easier than pulling the charging handle on an AR15 it's not even funny so there is a, not to mention the magazine reload on it people say oh well it's so much more difficult it's less ergonomic why because you're not doing it you're not releasing it with your fingertip the way you got used to releasing it uh, certainly I believe inserting it is much more intuitive. Front goes in, back rolls up, positive click, both tactile and audio click that you feel every time. I've never had to whack an AK magazine on the bottom of it to make sure it was seated. And I certainly have never had to do a tap rack bang on my first or second round. Like you see people do constantly with the M16 platform. So, um, there, there, there's a lot of huge advantages to it. Let, let's put it this way. Let's get it out there. The only major disadvantage to that platform, I feel, is that the factory sighting system and the factory furniture system suck. Other than that, <laughs> it's it's all fixable. It's all fixable with modern technology and modern training. And if you think that it's too hard to use, you should just train more because it's actually very, very, very intuitive. And there's 12-year-olds in many parts of the world that can run that thing better than a lot of Americans can run their M16. And they well, do. I, I, yeah. I equated yeah, I, I, I equated to propaganda, you know, and so how motivated are you going to be as a as a, you know, we'll say US soldier if if they if somebody comes to you, your drill sergeant comes to you and says, "Hey, the the guy across the, the guy across the road that you're going to be fighting, he's got he's got a very accurate rifle that's very ergonomic and it will never fail on him." Um, how motivated are you going to be to go out and fight that guy? You're just going to. And so I think that these myths came in as propaganda so that soldiers would be like, yeah, our rifle is better and it's faster and it's build more accurate and, yeah. and, to, and to build them up. I, re, I really, I mean, I, that's the only thing that I can, that I can sense. equate it to. Yeah. It makes sense why they would do that. Um, see, you know, I, see, I've always felt that it was the, the, there, there, there. I feel there's a military advantage to saying, "Hey, these guys are better equipped, but we we're we're going to win this one." Which is what hell the Taliban had to do that against you know you guys. It was uh, they had to say, "Hey, these guys got B two bombers; they can make the ground explode, and we'll never see it coming." And they they still have that urge to fight. But the juggernaut of the United States firearms industry was adamantly opposed to the importation of the Kalashnikov pattern rifle, and we. We see that with the fact that nobody stood up in 1989 for 922R. Nobody stood up for, for um, uh, Polytech. Uh, it was a David Kang or whatever in Atlanta, Georgia. Nobody stood up for him and said, hey, we should be importing these rifles. We shouldn't be banning this stuff. This is a Second Amendment issue. Nobody did that in 1989 because it did not suit the interests of the juggernaut, which is the American firearms industry. So I believe I'm going to respectfully disagree and say that it was a the, these these rumors have come predominantly from the American firearms industry and were propagated in the 80s and 90s because in the 1980s and 90s uh, in the in the 1980s I knew a lot of Vietnam vets you know I'm a Gen Xer almost all the boomers were Vietnam vets for the most part in my life and they all said 
the finest rifle I've ever seen in combat was that AK rifle that the uh, the Viet Cong was carrying. Um, granted, they all called it an AK-47 when it was really a Type 56, but they all sung the praises of the enemy's rifle. All the Vietnam vets did. I, I, I think we have a lot of uh, uh, lobbying power within the American firearms industry, and I believe that the rifle was pretty much kicked to the side until the last 15 years when it was impossible to ignore because of uh, internet technology and folks overseas, a new generation of guys overseas saying, hey, these things kick ass. We've shot some of them. They're pretty awesome. Um, I, you know, And they were able to send photos of them home that they were able to take with digital equipment. It wasn't like you could send – you had one roll of film that you could shoot yeah. for your whole year in Vietnam. There's a lot yeah. of information technology that's been passed back from this war, which is – hell, it's what has given guys like you the advice to say, hey, we need a better tourniquet. Information technology is what brought that. Not just personal experience. Now you've got your personal experience plus millions of other people saying, hey, we saw this over there. So I don't know. I think I, I stifled in the 80s and 90s by the gun industry. And during GWAT, man, the global war on terror, we've just seen so much advancement in how can we advance the equipment, whether it's um, prosthetics for guys that have been blown up, whether it's uh, accessories for rifles that guys are having to pick up and use overseas, AKs. Uh, whether it is, uh, look at the look at the accessories for the FAL and the G3. Where are those things? They're all over in Africa. And suddenly Magpul invents a stock where you can raise the cheek piece on them up to optics level. Right around the time we're doing serious amounts of uh, uh, special operations in Africa, particularly East Africa. Um, the information technology and global war on terror have opened up a lot of design things all over the place. Uh, um, so point, yeah. my, my theory is that it was the firearms industry that stifled it. <clears throat> Okay, yeah, I, I'd say that's a that's a pretty strict, freaking strong argument. I yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think probably uh, like you were saying in the '80s and whatnot, the the firearms industry. But before that, you know, prior to that, it was definitely, I think Jeff's side of it was the you know the military was was part of that. I think you both have good valid points there. Now um, <laughs> you're talking about some of the. Uh, other countries, you know, you were talking about the the Chicom there. Talk about you know the Galil. Talk about some of the other uh, variants that are out there that are being used uh, prolifically. That's me. Uh, yeah, either Vince. either one of you guys that want to field that one. Yeah, go. I mean, I, I go just talked. Go, go ahead and take it, Jeff. What's that? I said go go ahead and take it. I just talked for like, like oh, three no, minutes. Uh, so I mean, they, this they, one. You know, we would the variants that we'd see like over in Afghanistan. I mean, there was a, there was obviously it was all old Russian. Um, former Eastern Bloc rifles that were, you know, we were running around with, and it was it was kind of interesting. Not to beat a dead horse, but one of my the rifle that I do I do PT every morning, and I had a AK that I'd take. So I had my mission AK, and then I had another AK that I'd do PT with, and I'd go out and uh, run to the range with it and stuff like that. Anyways, I took that that old uh, rifle because I was having a discussion with another guy that was a former Marine, and he was telling me all the old stuff about AKs aren't accurate and stuff. And I was like, Hey, come on out here to the range. And we shot a hundred meter, a uh, hundred meter silhouette that I could, you know, essentially I could cover it up with, you know, a silver dollar and at a hundred meters. And we came back and, and, um, he said, yeah, well, you're, you're overshooting that rifle, Jeff. <laughs> so overshooting. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know how I'm magically making a mechanical device better, but, Maybe that's my superpower, and I've just never recognized that. But um, but that tells you some of the deep-suited uh, prejudices that are there are against the rifle. And but most of the rifles that we ran into over in Afghanistan, they were um, um, just old Russian ones. 
almost no AK-74s. Once in a while, you'd see an AK-74, but there was no ammo that was over there. The rifles that we were bringing in from overseas, we had Polish. As a matter of fact, we had Polish AK-74s that um, pretty interesting. Have you seen those vents where it had a, it was safe, full auto, semi, and then all the way down was three-round burst? And they were really yeah, that's great shooting rifles. That would be it's 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 Poland's five four five rifle that they call the Tantal or the Tantal. Um, technically not a seventy four, but the seventy four round for sure. That was Poland's bizarro answer, and and, and I never understood that because <laughs> Poland's AKM, Poland's AKM was one of the finest in my opinion, and um, it's something I've done multiple build classes with Larry Vickers, and and him and I just go on about every time we see these Polish kits. Man, these rifles were so nice. How did they get from that to the Tantal? Like the the Tantal, it's a weird variant, man, and it, it, it's kind of cool that it's got the three round burst in it. But it was it was one of those bizarre. Hey, this is right at the end of the Soviet era. Now we're just doing stuff to do stuff type of thing. Um, I'll, t- definitely- I'll tell you what, it, it was a great shooting rifle though. Like on three round burst, three round burst, we could hit a steel plate at twenty five meters all three rounds. Bing, bing, bing. I mean, it was. It was, it was like you were shooting a twenty-two long rifle, but you had that you had that five-four-five that was coming out. It screwed up the steel, obviously, because they were the uh, MSCs and the, the rounds we had. But um, man, it was a great shooting rifle. So you're saying it had safe, semi, full, and then three-round burst. It had all of those. No, it was safe, full, semi, three-round burst. So it had all those options. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you'd get you'd get lost trying to figure out. Right? So usually, it's like just, changing gears in a <laughs> like yeah. So you just dump it all the way to the bottom. I was like, I'm on three round burst. So we had those, and then um, in Iraq, we had man, they were Egyptian. They, Iraq had AKs from like all over the world. So they had we had Egyptian, we had Iraqi AKs, we had Russian AKs. Um, we had some that who knows where they came from because they they didn't have any markings on them. I mean, there was some stuff from, um, uh, what I say, Egypt. Who else was making them over? I- Iran. Um, so there's a lot of Iranian uh, AKs that were over there. Um, you know, and there, and it was varying mix. You know, if you if you start with junk, you're going to end up with junk. Some of them function just just great, and others, you know, it was like you're kind of taking your life in your own hands if you're wanting to shoot those. But um, Iraq definitely had a lot more of the variations that were out there from the other countries. Let's um before we get into to Vincent's um I want we want to talk about his new MK Ultra. Uh, let's take a couple of questions here. And this is from uh, my co-host Schwell, who couldn't join us today. His uncle had a car accident, so you guys keep Schwell's uncle in your thoughts and prayers as you're listening to this. Uh, but Schwell wanted me to ask, why would U.S. forces have a need for the AK? Is his first question, and his second question is, is the AK as combat effective as it is said to be. I think you've kind of mentioned that or talked to that one already. What about why would the U.S. forces have a need for the AK? Well, that, I mean, that's a good question. And the simple answer is it's the most prolific rifle on planet Earth. So you learn it because that's where you go into Africa, you go into the Middle East, you go into, I mean, you go into the Soviet Union. I mean, everybody has that rifle. There, I mean, Vince could probably better know than me how many millions of that thing were produced and then given out especially during the cold war so just pure you know just pure prolific nature of that rifle is would be in my mind one it's 
is why because and then two the indige that you're teaching your indigenous forces your the host country nation that's there that may be the rifle that they have because of for whatever reason and if you don't know how to use that rifle you can't teach it and i used to get into this discussion for me i was working with um afghans and iraqis and it was you, you couldn't you cannot effectively teach is those skills if you don't understand them yourself. And so, and you have to pick that rifle up and learn it. And I absolutely agree on every point on that. And the, the short version of me saying it is uh, any police officer nowadays that thinks that they shouldn't learn Spanish is wrong. And if you're in the United States military and you think that you don't need to know how to use the Kalashnikov pattern rifle, you're wrong. Because there will come a point in time in your life where you need that skill set. And if you don't have it, then it can literally be a matter of life and death. Very good point. And not only know how to use it, but you need to know it inside and out, how to break it down, how to clean it, how to how to fix it. Well, that's, that's part of learning how to use it. Absolutely. Just like, you know, an automobile or anything else, you need to know how to check the oil, change a tire, all that type of stuff. The basic maintenance of and... Um, you know, ma- maintaining preventative maintenance and basic repair of the platform are absolutely fundamental. Uh, and Jeff, you were saying that you chose to use the AK. That was that was your weapon of choice while you were over there in Afghanistan and Iraq. Is that correct? Yeah, be- because for me, you know, the, you know, the common myth is the seven six two thirty nine came around because you know the Soviets were already producing the seven six two fifty four, so it was a thirty cal, and it was easy to tool up for that. And and based off of at least my research. That nothing could be further from the truth. At the, at the time, the Soviet Union had two things that they were emphasizing, nuclear weapons and the AK. And the whole might of the Soviet Union was behind figuring out a better rifle. Remember, they essentially just got their butts kicked on the Eastern Front, fighting probably the finest mechanized infantry that's ever walked the earth, you know, the Waffen-SS, the Germans. And so, you know, the kill ratio between the Germans and the Russians was through the roof. Every single Russian was touched by World War II in 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 some way or another, either directly or indirectly, like family members that had died. I mean, you're talking millions and millions. It was like 25 million Russians died in World War II. So the whole might of the Soviet Union was getting behind this, and they developed the bullet first, and then they developed the platform for it. So the hap stance wasn't just, well, that's what they had laying around. It was like, no negative. That's that's a very naive naive way of looking at it. And so for me, when I, the more I learned about the rifle, the more I realized this is a great this is a great platform because the bullet is big enough that it could smash through stuff, but it's not so it's not so big that it's um, it's overextended. It's got too much energy behind it. So for a time, you know, I was carrying an MP7 for about four missions. I carried an MP7 because that came out and that was the new hotness. You know, and it's about that big. And it shoots, you know, it shoots that tiny round, which is essentially a twenty-two magnum. And I had this epiphanal moment of like, okay, if I get in a fight with an alley cat, this is probably a great rifle. But if somebody is riding behind hiding behind a, a car, then I need my AK. And and like my AK was a little it kind of looked like a crank off slash between a crank and a uh, and a Draco. It was that much longer than that MP seven was. And it was like Oh my gosh! I can carry the equivalent of a thirty, a thirty thirty, or a twenty two Magnum. Uh, I'm going to go with a thirty thirty, and and so for the, for the rifle for me, and then it was also a matter of confidence, because I, you know, for me in the unit I was in, 
it would be me and a couple of other Americans, and we'd have one or 200 Afghans that we were assaulting targets with. So me carrying the rifle instilled confidence in my troops as well because they could see, hey, this guy, they knew I could carry whatever I wanted. This guy's carrying this rifle, and he can handle it and shoot it better than we can. It was like, okay, now we're instilling confidence. And the other thing is, too, with me with an AK, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I look like everybody else around me. And so at that time, in the early days of uh, Afghanistan, there were a bunch of Chechen snipers that were running around. Well, who do you think they were going to aim at? Hey, that guy's got an M4. He's probably not an Afghan. Mm -hmm. I'm going to shoot him. So I would... So for me, it was almost a disguise measure at that point as well. And that makes sense why you would do that. Um, so CJ has joined us. CJ Johnson, president of Pioneer Arms USA. CJ, you there? Hey, CJ. Did we lose CJ? I'm going to go with yes. <laughs> going to go. He's not there anymore. Uh, it says he's on here. So, all right. So once he gets connected, we'll, uh, we'll get CJ on here. Um, but... Let's go ahead. Let's talk about Mesa Kinetic Research's the MKU, the MK Ultra. How did you come about the idea to develop this rifle, Vincent? Well, it, it, it I'll be kind of by accident. Um, a few years ago, John Sharps at Sharps Brothers out in sent me a um, one of his MB forty receivers. Uh, I'm, I built a rifle for myself out of it. I found some, uh, some issues with the early pre-production manufacturing. I sent him feedback on it. Uh, some other com- companies, Rifle Dynamics and Krebs Custom, did similar measures, kind of sent him the feedback. Um, he improved the product with our feedback over time. And then I had um, I had several that I had to build, uh, several of those receivers I had to build out for some California customers. And so I came up with, they kind of gave me carte blanche to build them however I wanted to. And so I built them all essentially the same. I did them different colors, but I those were the pre-production MKUs. I kind of said, hey, if I was going to build you know, something that was simple and effective, um, yet uh, you know, high quality and had the ability to mount certain things on it, I, I needed the ability to mount a good, uh, a good optics interface. I needed a, you know, a, a light or an IR uh, designator interface. And uh, other than that, I wanted to be able to take quick catch sling swivels, an M4 stock, that type of stuff. Um, but like the perfect balance that it's got, that was an accident. I'll totally admit that when I got done with it, um, I realized that the components I had used balanced it perfectly. Uh, it, like the center of balance is right where the front locking lug of the magazine would be. So it, it doesn't, it weighs 7.9 pounds, which is the same as an Arsenal Sam 7 or a Chinese Mac 90. And it does not feel like that. Everybody that picks it up goes, man, this thing's so light. I'm like, it's really not. It's just very well balanced. Mm-hmm. So when you put it back into the workspace, it, uh, it just sits there, man. It also, due to the geometry of it and, you know, the tuning that we do with the gas system, it kicks like a 5.45 or a 5.56. So it is a 7.62 by 39 rifle, but it's got that, you know, zero muzzle rise, just a little bit of straight back recoil impulse of the uh, 5.45 round. So, uh, I mean, how I came up with the, the idea for, for all these things was I just basically looked at what I would want to do on my rifle to do a modern fighting rifle off this receiver. I built three of them for some customers. They came out better than expected. The customers were very happy with them. And I said, okay, this is what I'm going to release as a uh, uh, you know, small batch uh, boutique production boutique production line, um, which essentially means that we're building your rifles kind of in batches of five or ten. We're not doing this uh, you know, mass production. It's still just two or three guys that have gotten your rifle uh, while it's being built. 
but we we used those specs because it came out so well that we were just we were happy with it. It, it worked well. We had great um, you know great uh, response from the public on it. Great response from the customers. Great response from everybody that saw them in the shop. And uh, where the MK Ultra name came from, that that should be fairly obvious to our Gen Xers and older. That um, you know the MK Ultra was a, a quote unquote alleged CIA mind control program. But uh, it was just, hey, man, it's an ultimate AK rifle, premium rifle. It's, uh, don't get me wrong, it does come with a premium price tag, but it's all premium parts put together by a premium builder. So, yeah, it's an ultra-type rifle at MK, is Mesa Kinetic. Um, I thought it would be kind of cool to uh, – I ran that name past a few people. They're like, dude, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so with, with the initial feedback, I, uh, I went with it. I te- put it past the test audience. A test audience did well with it. Um, granted the test audience is a bunch of jaded gun industry AK guys like myself, but who cares? <laughs> They're the only ones buying my rifle. So, um, uh, no, man, we've, uh, you know, MK used the short for it. It does say MK ultra on the side of the rifle. And yes, I do love when people make, does it come with LSD and a mind control experiment? I tell them, yes, <laughs> yes. I've been, to, I've been to Manchuria and no, I'm not answering any questions. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, it's funny because somebody did ask that. That was one of their questions. That's it great. really was, yeah. So you, it comes with a premium price tag. What are we talking here? Um, so the the gun is it's twenty six hundred dollars, uh, which I will say, yeah, I know there's going to be some sticker shock there, but what I did when I priced it is I went and I looked at the other builders that were building um, Sharps rifles or building rifles off the same Sharps Brothers receiver, and um, you know I'm willing I'm willing to put this one. Uh, to the Pepsi challenge versus any of those, uh, these other companies do build a good product. But what I did notice is that their rifles were also 2,600 or 2,650 and they looked like they had similar features to mine in the photos. But then when I hit, when I read the fine print, there was a drop down menu to start adding things on, like add the same handguard that I use an SLR rifle works, uh, 11 and a half inch lightweight handguard to add that handguard was then, you know, $200 plus $300 for the rail gas tube plus, an additional charge for the ALG trigger plus an upcharge for the Krebs safety plus an upcharge for the Silencer Co. muzzle device. Our rifle comes with all of that for $2,600. And when people say, well, how could you afford to do that? Hey, I'm not necessarily quite as profit-driven as some other... Uh, I, I'm a uh, 17-year gunsmith who is also the uh, only member of my LLC. I'm the only. I'm the CEO, CFO. I'm everybody at my company. So I don't have a staff of non-gun builders in executive positions to pay here. I don't have an owner that doesn't put his hands on the actual guns. And some of these other companies do have that. They've got an owner that's not a gun builder and you've got to pay him and he expects a profit mark. I I can just take a paycheck and be okay with it. I also don't have, um, you know, West Coast real estate to pay for. I'm here in South Louisiana. My cost of living is a little less. So there are some guys out West that charge more for stuff. Um, But I feel that this rival is priced competitively compared to our competition. I feel that uh, the components we're using are better standard uh, features than our competition. And I'd be glad to put it up to uh, independent testing against my competition's, uh, you know, quote-unquote equal rifles, uh, you know, as long as we were doing it with somebody that was doing a fair and independent test on it. I'd be glad to do that. Um, that's I, I more have to say that because I'm addressing some of the trolls on social media that have made accusations that it's a copy of somebody else. You're always going to get that kind of bullshit. Oh, yeah. and, absolutely. <laughs> And I'll address it within reason, and sometimes I won't address it at all. But uh, everybody that's received one of these has been very happy with it. It got amazing response at NRA. I had uh, Ken Hackathorn, Jerry Michalek, uh, 
Tom Jones, uh, quite a few other you know well-known guys Mark in the uh, the gun or but the, yeah, Mark Krebs came by to take a look at it. He came by the booth. Um, uh, so so all in all, it had absolutely excellent response. Um, I only had one guy who gave me any kind of crap about it, and that was because of his undying loyalty to another now failed company out of Florida. Um, who tried to build a high-end AK and, and, and failed and are no longer building those rifles. So, um, you know, fanboys are fanboys. I try to treat all these other companies, you know, relatively equally. I do understand some are my competition and some of them are, frankly, not my competition. But no, besides that one guy who was a fanboy of a uh, competing company, now defunct competing company, uh, besides that, everybody had a great response to it. And, and those that have shot it, it was at Kalash in Texas. Uh, I was going to ask Morneau you about that. There. Yeah, I wasn't there. Uh, I had to teach a class that day, but uh, Ryan Morneau brought his out there. He had one of the first ones that shipped off the production line, and uh, it got overwhelmingly great response to the nice. point where I've had a lot of shooters that were there say, "Hey, I want one," or "Hey, can you kind of my rifle be more like?" The answer on modding is no, because honestly, the receiver kind of is the core of that rifle. And the ergonomics and um, geometry of this receiver really do add to the recoil management and overall ergonomics of the platform. Now, you know, Red October's coming up in October. Are you going to be at that? I am going to do my best. We will be represented there. We will be a sponsor there. Uh, we've been a sponsor since the beginning. Uh, we sponsored the very first year. Uh, we sponsored the last two. We'll be a sponsor. Are you going to have somebody there using it in the competition? Um, I'm not sure. Sure, we'll, we'll we'll have to see about that. Um, I, I'm sure there will be a, a couple in, in use at the competition, whether or not it's somebody running for us. You know, it's it's feasible. They have changed categories some this year because now now they do have a seven six two open and a five four five open. And it really makes sense to run seven six two and open because there was no caliber restrictions there. So it looks like they've changed that this year. That should be good. We'll have demo. We'll have a, we'll, if we're if I'm there, we'll have it in a demo bay for sure. Yeah. So, so, Jeff, do you know what uh, Red October is? No, I, I, I don't. I was going to ask, what is that? So I'll let uh, you. you want me to? Yeah, I'll let yeah, you. Yeah, I can take it. So Red October is, it was established in uh, 2016 was the first year. Um, the first three years, it's been at Southern Utah Practical Shooting Center and Brian Nelson um, from Tactical Performance Center. He's also like a world champion three-gun shooter. Young guy, very competent at match organization. Um, he ran it with his father out there. And uh, Rifle Dynamics has been the title sponsor for it since day one. It's a essentially it's like a national AK match. It's run three gun style, three gun type of um, you know using both bays and natural terrain for your uh, with an AK or also a category where you can shoot another com block rifle like a PPSH or an SKS, a Nagant, etc. Um, but no, it's it's basically a uh, two day national level AK match. Um, that has kind of led the way for a wave of other um, regional and national level AK matches. So it's in uh, it's been in Hurricane Utah, which is as you probably know if you're out in Utah, just outside of St. George, uh, near the Arizona border. Uh, it's going to be at Las Vegas Pro Gun Club in uh, Boulder City, uh, Nevada, uh, this October. I believe it's still the last weekend in October. Uh, the weekend before Halloween is when it is. So I know the shooter spots are pretty well full up right about now. They may be adding more. I'm not sure, uh, but absolutely, I would encourage anybody, particularly if you love the AK and you've never competed, I would encourage you to get involved in this match because it is absolutely caters to folks that are not constant competitive shooters for, for guys that just want to come out and shoot. 
I had not been a competitive shooter in years after gamers ruined all the disciplines I love. And I, I had a great time. I think I took like sixth or seventh place in my division the first year nice. I was out there and I hadn't competed in years. And, um, I, I, it's a great time and it'll be even better at pro gun club because, uh, it's a little more central to uh, McCarran airport. So uh, I, I have high hopes for this. And I would definitely consider uh, anybody, particularly if you're in the area, come on out. And those of you that say stuff like, well, it's way across the country. Dude, I live in South Louisiana, and I got to fly like four hours to get out there. It's cheap to drive. fly to Las Vegas, man. It sure is, man. Spirit Airlines, it's like, it costs me like 150 bucks or something. It's no problem to fly. Yeah. Southwest's always running deals out there. Yeah, yeah that, that's Absolutely. not an issue. So, Jeff, that would be uh, something you might be interested in signing up and doing. Yeah, I'm totally going to check that out. Yeah, and he was talking earlier, the Clash Bash, that's one of the ones kind of a spinoff from, from Red October. Uh, it's a newer one, I guess. Was this the first year of Clash Bash? It, it was, and I believe that's uh, uh, some of the guys from Kyber Cut. You know, and I, I could be wrong. I found out about it last minute. Um, it was, uh, it, it was definitely. It's, it's going to improve, be improved upon. It was much bigger than they thought it was going to be. It was much bigger than I thought it was going to be. And it's definitely something they're going to be doing again. I will definitely make a point to be out there next year. I just, I found out about, out about it two weeks ahead of time, yeah, and I had a car I did too. to teach them. It was in Texas, I, right? Yeah, it's on uh, uh, I don't know, west of uh, west of H- north northwest of Houston. Yeah, I was thinking it was out there. So let's do this. Um, C- or CJ, are you back? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, so we got CJ Johnson joining us now, president of Pioneer Arms Corps USA. Welcome in, CJ. Thanks. Glad to be here. I don't know how much of uh, the conversation you uh, you heard. So no, I've been. I got right in right after you guys started. It's it's pretty interesting, and I I had a chance to go down and and uh, check out his AK at at NRA and really liked it. He's you know it's a it's a high quality you know very professional job that he's done with it. Yeah, like he said, it's thank you. It's it's a uh, it's not really boutique, but it is um, specialized. We'll say it's a specialized AK. Well, I looked at it as a weapon, and he he did a very good job of making a very solid weapon that that would be used, you know, very efficiently. Very good. Appreciate that. Thank you. So, um, CJ, meet uh, Jeff, Jeff Kirkham. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? Good, CJ. It's very nice to meet you. Been following you for a while, so know a little bit about you. Oh, all all the good stuff and none of the bad stuff, I hope. (laughs) I kind of like the bad stuff, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes when you speak your mind, people don't like it. Well, it's we're in the same boat. So, CJ, before we get into our listener questions, uh, what's new and exciting with Pioneer Arms Corps? Well, our, we're just now coming out, and um, you guys might find this interesting, is we now have, with our gas block, we have an integrated rail that's actually milled in with the gas block that sticks back over the dust cover about six inches. So it's it's already set. It's part of the gas block itself, so it's not an adapter or something you have to put in it or or a hinky dust cover that's got something with a hinge on it. This is an actual fixed part on the gun that helps you keep the zero as much as possible, uh, either for a red dot or for any optic that you want to put on it. And we also have the – we designed the back of the help up. We designed the back of the help up so it's already pre-drilled for just about any mount that you want. And then we have the Picatinny rail, which we've designed just for the back of the help up. So anybody that's doing the – uh, SBR braces or anything else, anything with a Picatinny mount, like the six-hour brace will mount right onto the back of it. 
So we've we've added that stuff on there also. Very good. I saw some pictures of that rail. I haven't actually got to, to have hands on. Did you have that at NRA? It was at NRA, and soon as we right now we're we're about three hundred orders behind. As soon as we get caught up on the orders, I'll send you one up where you can have on the show and play with. Very cool. Very cool. And speaking of, we're going to be giving away another help up today. Is that right? Are we giving away a help up or something else? Uh, yes, help up. Okay, help up. Last episode, we gave away a PPS 43, and I know that that uh, listener was very happy to to win that. Yeah, and and, you're, and uh, let your listeners know that we're pumping them out as soon as we can. I have X number of demo guns to give out a month, and I'm trying to catch up with our sales. Uh, to be sending them out, so we're we're I think we're three or four guns behind right now. Yeah. So for for Nick and all the other guys that are waiting, your guns are coming probably a ship next week uh, to get them out there to you guys. That's cool. They're 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 uh, okay. Everybody, Schwell and I talked to everybody. Everybody knows what's going on, so uh, it's going to be well worth the wait. They're going to be patient. Hey, I, I got a question for Jeff real quick. Yeah. Yes, sir. Jeff, Jeff, you were talking a little bit ago about the penetration of the seven six two versus the the two two three, and I, you know, I've always looked at the the seven six two, and and when I was in Iraq, of course, I don't have the same background that you do as special ops and and stuff in the time in Afghanistan. Um, you know, when we first hit the ground over there, we were very limited as far as small arms, uh, so we immediately switched over to the AKs and stuff. So. I really liked the fact that the AK had a lot of knockdown power, um, but I was not impressed with the penetration of it. Now you may have a different experience that I did, but I I just didn't I didn't care for the amount of penetration that it would do versus the five five six. Now, granted, the five five six had a tungsten has a tungsten core, which allows it uh, to go through there, and and the AK is very effective uh, in what we're using it for. But I think I think the two two three, in my opinion, still has a where it's not going to do as much damage after it does penetration. But I like the fact that the two two three would do the penetration. Yeah. So I mean, that's kind of an ongoing discussion. And when you talk about penetration and and ballistics and bullets, you're kind of saying, you know, you know, it's made out of steel. Well, what kind of steel? And so all of the bullets that were over in Iraq that you that you picked up to my knowledge there were no mild steel core rounds in the 76239 that were over there there may have been some but but the studies that that came back from the battlefield recovery there was no MSC that was over there the MSC was the answer to to the increasing the penetration because you remember when the when the uh, AR platform first came out that was just regular ball ammo it was 55 grain ball ammo and then because it was deflecting and because of lack of penetration, they then went through and they said, okay, let's go green tip. Let's put the tungsten penetrator in there so that we can start smashing through some stuff um, to get to the targets. But then that that led to some of the lethality problems because then bullets were just zinging right through people and they weren't yawing like what the early five, you know, 55 grains were doing. So you, you, so you kind of have a, a mix that was there. You know, with a regular ball ammo of the 76239, when it when it's hitting, the cool thing about that is, and it's basic round. You know, with enough with enough mass, you can you can essentially smash through stuff like a car or behind a behind a wall, or well, not necessarily a wall in Afghanistan, but certainly the metal gates and whatnot like that. The green tip would do that. The 55 grain would ha- has a much harder time. So the 55 grain we found was more lethal, but 
but um, than the green tip, but it had lacked on the penetration. So that's probably what you ran into. And then the Soviet answer to that was the mild steel core that was, um, you know, like what they started off with the 545, but then they started adding that to the 762-39 because for, for it to help with the penetration. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's a, I was just trying to get your take on it versus what you've seen versus what we've seen, and that absolutely makes sense. Yeah, I mean, once once you once you start having the mass that it's there, I mean, mass kind of velocity rules, but mass also, you know, the the bigger the bullet, obviously, the more it wants to hold on to its energy. And so, you know, when we start talking about rounds bouncing through stuff, the 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 AK, the seven six two thirty nine, it's just a it's a mass problem because it's got more ass to it than it's you know it's continuing on. So. But I'm with you. Like I saw wounds from AKs that look like, you know, it looked like it was just a simple hole. And then I saw guys that got shot with AKs and it, and it looked like a shark came up and took a bite out of their shoulder, out of bite out of their leg. And, and it was like, man, what was, what was the difference here? And, and, you know, and you never really know, did the bullet skip off the ground and then hit this guy or did it just hit this guy? And what was the distance and, and all that stuff. And you never really know, um, from that but but i've seen all sorts of different rounds from or different all sorts of different wounds with and it was almost like no rhyme or reason to uh to how that thing was doing and and the same with with the 556 as well are you guys ready to field some questions from Absolutely. our from our listeners uh i want to make sure we get this one in uh so let's start off this is from sunny pazikas and his question is from your perspective what are the percentages we have seen of AK modernization in the U.S. in the past five years uh, driven and are geared for? One, uh, true need to improve combat effectiveness. Two, aesthetics of making weapons look certain way. Trend chasing and duplicating improvements in gadgets introduced for difference. So this is Vince. We're going to let you. Uh, okay. So th- this is a really, really good question. And I can't, um, I-, I can't answer it in percent- percentages for Sonny. But I do want to address a few things. First of all, I think we all know there's no shortage of dirt merchants out there that'll sell a gimmicky product just to turn a profit. And there's a ton of companies out there that sell crap that is not at all any kind of combat effective tool to bolt on your rifle so that they can make a profit. And the guys that are making it aren't shooters, don't 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 understand the manual of arms on the AK, don't understand the way that we train with it. And so there's no shortage of crap. I will give them that. I wanted to address a few things that were modernizations that are true answers to issues. And one of them is the M4 stock adapter. Uh, the M4 stock adapter uh, changes the geometry of the rifle completely. If the adapter that you use is is in line with the bore of the rifle like it is on an M4 or an M16, then what you've got is the, recoil, the bolt energy, because there's a big, heavy bolt carrier on the AK. You've got the energy of that long stroke system coming back and it's coming back directly in line with your shoulder at that point in time. It's not coming back two inches above your shoulder and causing muzzle flip on the rifle. So uh, not only that, it also gives you a quick detach sling, a quick uh, QD plug-in sling attachment, which I find to be all important uh, when attaching any kind of sling to a rifle. And it, get, it solves a lot of length of pull issues that people had with the rifle. So it's adjustable length of pull and the recoil geometry sling adaption. You've also got aftermarket triggers like, say, the ALG, which I'm actually in talks with them right now about helping with a redesign because there are I some issues with it. I love that trigger. I've been using it I in do. one of mine, too. Love it. 
it's got some fitting issues that I'd like to help him solve, but it uh, it absolutely improves shooter accuracy. I've got nothing against the old Tapco G2 or the Arsenal three-piece trigger for uh, semi-auto U.S. rifles, but installing that trigger and having a much lighter, like a reliable lighter uh, trigger pull definitely helps with uh, uh, shooter accuracy. The aftermarket, um, the grips, the U.S. Palm and the Magpul grips, something that fills up the shooter's hand, particularly, uh, and we use this on the MKU, Magpul came up with their K2 series of grips, which has a more vertical grip, uh, but it's a it's a wide grip that fills up your hand, but it's more vertical, less canted backward. That helps with a chest and plates towards target, you know, squared to the target shooting position with an elbow down, elbow tuck um, shooting position as opposed to an across the body camp parry offhand shooting position. Uh, and it does great on the M16 as well. Um, gas tuning for suppressors is absolutely a necessary thing that uh, we've come up with for uh, for the suppressor market. Concentric barrels for the suppressors is absolutely important. These are all things that make the gun more effective. Quality U.S. magazines being made absolutely makes it more effective. Um, interfaces like Keymod or MLOC to use a light, a white light, as well as any kind of uh, infrared designator or infrared light. Uh, many guys have a PBS-14 or some other kind of uh, nod nowadays, and it is important for them to be able to attach the appropriate equipment to fight with the rifle in the dark. That optics mounts, in general, we've got great optics mounts. We've got a lot of dirt merchant ones, too. Uh, but there's a lot of very good solid optics mounts that have come out in the last 10 or 15 years. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just throw it out there. Cerakote. Cerakote's a great gun finish. And it work, we use it on AKs. It's a great finish. It doesn't flake off. If you scratch it, it scratches, but it doesn't flake. Uh, it's, it's highly durable. I've got a crank that like has been to Red October two, two or three times, twice, I think. Competed in Red October. Uh, been in countless classes. Has 30,000 rounds through it. And there's a few scratches around the magwell, but other than that, the finish is held up. So all of these things are things that the U.S. firearms industry has, has come up with for the AK or adapted for use on the AK that I think are absolutely relevant, real-world modernizations that do make the rifle more combat effective and give it better longevity. And longevity to a tool is part of combat effectiveness. So that being said, there's a bunch of trash out there that, yes, just make it look like an AR. And most of that trash is easily found at your local gun show, and there's no shortage of dirt merchants there with no scruples that'll sell it to you. So it is important for folks to listen to actual experts and not pay to industry shills when they're uh, um, talking about quality components to put on the rifle that'll actually make it more combat effective. And to be honest, that's probably one of my problems in business is that I'm too honest about what works and doesn't work. And I'm unwilling to sell out for the almighty dollar and say that while I can make a bunch of money off this thing, it's not going to be better. So that that's our area of expertise, what actually works and what actually doesn't work. That's why we built our MKU the way we did, is because I didn't want to put dirt merchant stuff on it. I wanted to put stuff actually going to increase combat reliability and combat effectiveness. Good point. So there you go, Sonny. I hope that answers your question. Um, Jeff, did you want to chime in on any of that? No, I, I think Vince hit everything. I mean, you know, when we first started out with AKs in, you know, 2003, 2004 in Afghanistan, there was there were no rails. And so, you know, we were putting right. stuff like the picture you had on me, that AK that I'm holding, that was all stuff that I put together. Duct and it tape. Was very, <laughs> I saw yeah, a bunch of I mean, duct tape on the butt. Yeah, we're, we're bolting that stuff on there so that, you know, so we could run lasers you know, and, uh, at night so that we could, you know, we could take advantage of that. So all of that stuff now is, 
And it was actually, if I can give a shout out to Mark Krebs, he was one of the guys that really helped us out a lot with, uh, with developing some of those early quad rail systems that we, uh, later on started using. Yeah. I was just getting ready to add Mark's done a lot for that. Mark, uh, Mark was one of the, the first people that realized that there was a need to have the rail system on top of there for the red dot. And he's had countless of designs that went across the dust cover and locked into the back and, and for the rail system with that. Um, he also come up with the ambidextrous, the ambidextrous safety, um, on that. And, and I actually have one of his five, four fives that has a, uh, a left-handed charging handle on it. So, so that being said, we've got a question here. Do they prefer to overhand or underhand rack the AK charging? Underhand. Well, yeah. just overhand and underhand. I do underhand because that way, if there's anything on top of the rifle I've picked up, like a different optic, I'm doing the same motion every single time. And so underhand always works. It works from the workspace. Right as my mag goes in, I just reach to the other side of the rifle and slap that charging handle down. So that's my personal preference because I can do it the exact same way every single time. Same reason I stroke the slide on a pistol and don't use the slide release. We, we went away from the underhand when we were, when we were overseas um, because it, when we started mounting stuff on the rifle, it was easy because we were fighting with gloves on. And so it was easy to catch something else. So we actually... We'd reach over, but before we'd reach over, we'd roll the rifle horizontal. So the charging handle's right there. So like literally from the load to the roll to the rack, your non-firing hand, your work hand, doesn't have to move. I mean, it doesn't have to change spaces versus traveling clear underneath. But it was we did that because it was a more sure way because depending on how your rifle was configured, there's no way that you're going to accidentally grab something that you didn't want. And then also... You can use the same method, whether you're standing, kneeling, squatting, you're in the prone position, it all goes. So we, we'd use the workspace just like what Vince was talking about, so we'd bring that back so we could see the mag well. But then it was a, it was a roll rack and then back on target. Very good. That was from uh, Pew Pew RN. Do you have any, um, any comments on that, CJ? You know, I don't, but they're both, I mean, it's techniques. It's what you've trained and what you've tracked and it's the muscle memory, you know, as long as you've got the muscle memory and what you're doing with that. I've actually seen it done both ways and, and myself, I actually take it to another extreme where I like to, I like to rack underneath, but I like to, to row the gun to the right when I rack underneath. So if there's any jams or anything else, I can clear those and just get used to the fact of letting them drop out of the mag. This is from uh, Robin Kessel says, ask Jeff if he prefers irons or red dot. Oh, I mean, red dot. I mean, it's red dot. I mean, it translates over to, I mean, irons are great. And I always say that electronic sights are enhancements. They're not replacements. So you, you still want your, you still want your irons there. But I mean, red dot is such an advantage when you start talking about fighting and fighting at night, fighting under stress and, and all of that. I mean, there's a reason that you know, red dots. And I ran, I, I love the EOTech. I mean, that's what I used for years and years and years because it works great for more precision work as well as, you know, for doing close quarter battle. And so, but yeah, electronic sites are, I mean, they're just, they're just such a huge advantage. What about you, Vince? Oh, I, absolutely. Red dot. Uh, I, I'm an aim point guy. I ran, I love the, the shape of the EOTech reticle. I love the 65 MOA ring with one MOA dot. Um, every EOTech I've ever had eight batteries, like it was going out of style, even when they were turned off. So I went full up, full bore, 
all aim point a few years back and um i've i've become very accustomed to it they i i love it i would never use a pair of iron sights willingly over a red dot in any kind of life and death situation it doesn't make any sense to and the guys that post the the memes about i shoot iron sights this is what i was trained on dude you were trained on that in the most basic manner possible to do the most basic operations with that rifle no tier one unit anywhere is charging indoors with uh m16a2s with a2 sights on (laughs) it's not happening so we've had like 18 years of technology development since 9-11 it's the same thing with the guys that run the uh, russian web gear or the russian optics the israeli optics like dude we have we've done more war in the last 18 years than like in the rest of our history and more r&d in our in our industry to accommodate the war fighters and taking less casualties than anywhere else in history why would we not be going with that science using the tools that have been developed? Um, so yeah, if you're if, if using iron sights over a red dot sight right now is nothing more than um, it, it's it's you know it's it's a, uh, a fetish or a um, uh, what do they call it when you're like looking back at the past fondly? It's it's that whole thing. It's nostalgia. It's nostalgia. Just yeah. You should know how to pay an homage to the past. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I mean, come on, man. Like like nobody really goes. Goes out with the M16A1. There's guys that are, hey, no, I think if anybody had the, the choice of a red dot or irons, they're going to obviously check, you know, check the red dot. What about a scope? Would, would you guys run a what kind of scope, or would you run a scope on an AK, AK47, AK70? Just a micro red dot, man, is all you need. No. What about like it, you a know, one to four or anything like that? It, it would depend. I mean, we had guys that were running ACOGs on theirs, you know, because the distances in Afghanistan were were such that. You'd want a little bit more precision for shooting out there or shooting up onto the side of a mountain or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it, I think it starts running. And, you know, I ran I ran a four power on my AK for a little while. And then I was like, I don't need this. And and I ended up going back to my EOTech. And so, you know, it's kind of the tomato tomato. Yeah. So Edward Reagan Burton asks, is there a real, and he capitalizes real, need for a pin retainer on a semi-automatic AK? And he's referring to the uh, trigger pin, aftermarket retainer plates. And Yes. So I wanted, I almost answered this one on the internet last night, but I wanted <laughs> I know, to know you were all over it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. There, you need to have a reta- some kind of retainer because those things will just drift right out of the gun without the retainer in a... Um, in a full auto AK, that is the auto sear, the tail of the auto sear spring that locks those pins in. In a semi-auto two-pin AK, you need to either have a wire retainer like a Shepherd's Crook or some other kind of wire retainer or a retaining plate. There's, no, I guess some guys use like Eclipse, but there needs to be something holding those pins in because if something's not retaining those pins after three or four rounds, one of them is just going to drift right out of the gun and you're going to have dead trigger and jammed up gun. So, yeah, absolutely. Now, do you need to take your brand-new Wasser 10 and pull the wire out of it and put a, a, a metal plate in it? No, you don't need to do that. That's not necessary unless you're having a problem with your wire retainer and the pins coming out. And some of the best retainers I've ever seen have been Shepherd's Crook-style wire retainers. So, but absolutely, 100%, there's a need for that for there to be fire control retention in the gut. Very good. Jeff? I, I agree. Okay. I don't know if I mean, you add anything you to that or you not. Can't, you can't argue. Can't argue. It's like, yeah, I've seen them. I've seen them drift out, and we end up trying to do funny stuff where we'd mushroom the ends with a punch or something like that to 
keep them from even on the full autos that we had overseas even those those guys would sometimes start drifting out and so yeah i mean it's okay uh jacob rosecki uh, I think we answered this already. What made Vince want to design the MKU the way he did? I love the modernization of the AK. What is better to use on the MKU, a red dot, a one to three, or even a, say, a three to nine? I think we answered that. Also, how easy is it to modify the MKU if you want a different handrail or grip? Uh, that's real easy. The, um, the only thing I'll say is that the MKU does not come with a handguard retainer uh, because it uses a um, – uh, an SLR rifle works forehand. So as long as the handguard that you want to put on there does not require a lower handguard retainer, it's easily modifiable. Um, just unbolt the SLR and bolt on whatever you want to. Um, and then the grip is one screw. It, it changes just like the grip on any other AK. So you got one screw, pull it out, pop another grip on. Totally simple. Uh, let's take a couple more, and then uh, we're going to give away an AK. We're going to give away some Black Rifle Coffee uh, AK Espresso and a Dude, mug uh, from AK from Rodham. This actually came from Rodham, Poland. I brought that back myself. So we're going to be giving uh, all that away here coming up. So let's take, um, let's find a good one. Let's try Josh Spill here. He says, hey, y'all, with the recent increases in U.S. manufactured AKs, do you anticipate any U.S. AK compatibility standards to flesh out? Basically, will building an AK from the receiver up be as easy and common as the AR world. I think we're already seeing that, other than the barrel. I mean, I don't know how that would be entirely possible, though, to make it where it's as easy as an AR. See, here's the thing, is that an AR-15, half the work's already done for you. The The rear end of that barrel is threaded for a barrel extension. The chamber's cut. All that, The headspace is already done on it. Um, the gas port's already drilled. All that stuff is done, so... so so all you got to do is slide it in and, and put a barrel nut down. Unless you make the AK into this, totally redesign it into a more modular system, um, you're not going to see guys putting them together at the kitchen table. And and I got to be honest, I kind of welcome that because I see a ton of kitchen table ARs that are down dangerous. This guy's with barrel nuts that are loose and the barrels oh wobbling, gosh. and they're out there shooting the darn thing. So yeah. so. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's a, the, the kitchen table. I never like the term kitchen table building because work should be done in a workshop or out in the field with proper tools. It should not be done at a kitchen table. That's where eating and family discussions happen. And just so happens you offer a class uh, for building AKs, you and Larry. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'll Real quickly, myself and Larry Vickers have been doing the Kalashnikov Essentials class since 2016. So this will be our, our uh, 2020 will be our fifth year doing it together. Um, we announced it about a year out because it sells out within, you know, about six months of announcing it. Uh, we just announced that it. it'll be March 6th through 8th of 2020 in Gonzales, Louisiana. And, uh, we just started selling spots in it. It's a two day all inclusive build class here at our shop. You build the rifle here with me and Larry and my staff here and, uh, you know, nine other people in the class. It's limited to 10 people plus Larry building a rifle. And then on the third day, we go out, we got a private range about 10 minutes from the shop. And Larry does his one-day AK operators class. I kind of co-teach that with him. And uh, it's a great time. It's a great experience. So if, uh, if you're interested, definitely contact us. Very cool. All right, you guys ready to give away an AK, CJ? Sure. Sure. Contain yourself, man. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I've got a list of six names here. 
and I've assigned random numbers to them. I'm going to read the names off, not in any certain order, and then we're going to randomly pick one of these numbers somehow. I'm going to let you engineer types figure out how we randomly do that. So we've got Kenneth McGee. We've got Big Papa 94. We've got Chuck Sanford. We've got Bill Hampstead. We've got Katie Healy. And we've got Jacob Rosecki. And I have randomly assigned numbers to those individuals, one through six. So how do you how do you uh, brainiacs suggest that we randomly pick one of those? Well, do you have a die because there's six sides on a die, and you have six numbers? I don't have one handy. Does anybody have a dice handy or a die handy? No, because I'm not because I'm at work and I wouldn't play degenerate games like throwing dice at work, man. So, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Oh, um, good idea. A die would work great if I had one. Oh, wait, I've got one. Stand by. It'll take me two seconds. Is it a six-sided die, or is it one of those Dungeons & Dragons dies? <laughs> Dungeon & Dragons. <laughs> so it's a six-sided. You see it? I'm showing, yeah. I'm showing our guests in the camera here. Oh, I hate to... You sure you guys don't have a die that you could do it? I'm sorry, I'm absolutely... All right, so I'm going to put the camera down here. Can you see? Yeah, there you, you go. You're going to roll... Oh, T is going to roll it. Here we go. Here, you come roll it. T is going to roll it. I'll give you a $25 heart eight. She just she just had surgery, so she said don't look at her. All right. Roll it. Roll them bones, baby. Roll them bones. Number five. Number five. I'm going to show them in the camera. See it? Can you see that? It's five? Yep. And then here's my names on the pad. Who's number five? I can't read it. Say it. Come here and say it. Say it in the microphone. This microphone right here. Jacob Roseski. There you go. Jacob. Oh, holding for the win. Holding for the win. That's awesome. <laughs> Jacob Rosecki. Congratulations, Jacob. You are the winner of a Pioneer Arms Corps Help Up. And CJ, is he going to get that, uh, the one with the upgraded uh, parts on it? He's going to get the one with the upgraded rail on it, and we'll go ahead and tap it and mount the Picatinny rail on the back. And if he sends a T-shirt size, we'll throw a T-shirt in. I can tell you right now he's at least a 2X. He's a big boy. <laughs> Maybe he will not get a T-shirt. <laughs> but uh, congratulations to Jacob. And uh, for some reason in the AK world, the the triple and double and quadruple X shirts all disappear really quick. A lot of big boys in the gun industry. A lot of big boys. Yeah, that's, that's the United States in general. Just FYI, it's not just one of the industries. All right, so we got to pick a winner for this coffee and coffee mug. I want one of our guests to go to the Facebook page where we um, posted for the questions and go down through there and uh, randomly pick one of our uh, listeners who submitted questions. That's all you, Jeff. Okay. So the your Facebook page. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Hey, while you're looking for that real quick, you know, I don't think that people, especially your listeners, I think there's a vast majority of Americans that don't understand exactly what Jeff did. Um, we, we talk a lot about special forces and working with the indigenous forces and stuff over there, but I don't think the, the norm of the American people realize that it was Jeff and maybe four other guys um, that were with, you know, three to four hundred Afghanistans and that was it. No other support or anything else. And those guys were out there by themselves. And if those forces decided that they wanted to, to turn or run or anything else other than, you know, air support that was a little bit of ways, people don't realize, you know, that, that 
what truly being alone, you know, other than your interpreter and, and the guys that you have with you, what it was like to be out there, you know, stationed and doing those particular things. It's not like they were on a base where they had a PX and, you know, they had their, they could run to their, their cash or their, you know, their, their combat hospital or anything else or their, other than a medic that they already had with them. Um, you know, it, it was pretty, pretty daunting task you know, that they had handed to them and, and you know, the, just the numbers that they had and the fact that these guys went out there and completed those missions and continue, uh, you know, to make them happen, whereas most of the forces and stuff would go out and spend their, their patrol from A to B and then go back in behind the wire. And Jeff was one of the guys with a team out there that basically um, for the, you know, I, th- I think five, six years lived out in a basically a little a little base in the middle of nowhere with these guys and i think that's something that really needs to be commended and and the american people and and the listeners need to really understand just exactly what his potter combat was yeah we would thank you (laughs) i mean yeah it's um very few people you know very few people understand that and that's okay and that's okay that's why we're there is so that you know but for what we're doing is about uh, for every one of our, for every one of our Afghans, we were replacing, you know, between five and seven Americans. And so it really allowed us to, you know, get out there and prop up the Afghan government. Well, not prop them up, but help them help their help themselves. And so essentially, can you hear me? Yeah, oh, I can sorry. hear you just rubbing on your shirt. So, but I mean, essentially what, you know, what just what CJ was saying is we would recruit these guys out of the mountains and we bring them in, run them through a condensed training cycle. And then, um, you know, about three o'clock target packets would start coming in. It was like, okay, get your rifle. And hopefully you were paying attention in class and we'd go assault targets with these guys. And so, yeah, that's what, you know, essentially that's what I did for, I was in that unit for 12 or 13 years. Very cool. So I, I've got a, I was I've got say, a winner. You got a winner, winner, chicken dinner. Yeah, I do. He right. he actually he's lot, he was uh, asking a lot of questions on here. Okay, and um, said that he loves the AK corner and he's trying to catch it live. And it's Josh Spill. Josh Spill is how I've been saying it. Spill. Spill. <laughs> so congratulations, Josh. You uh, are going to win a bag of the Black Rifle Coffee Company AK Espresso and a coffee mug from. Rodham that we picked up thanks to CJ when we took our trip over to Rodham, Poland, uh, the AK from Rodham. So congratulations on that. And then we have another giveaway from Occam Defense. They've got a little swag package that they've been putting up for you lead heads as well. Uh, do you want that one to go to uh, John Capone? Yeah, let's send that one to Capone, man. Okay, we'll, we'll hook Capone up with that one. It'll be something nice. Uh, uh, Brian over there, he, he really sets them up with some good swag. Brian, Brian's some good people, man. He really is. And, and that's uh, the Occam RSD uh, on their rear sight. They uh, we had them widen it out and uh, make the U-notch in it. That was our input early on on their RST product. And uh, I really like the product. It's a solid mounting interface, there's no doubt. Yeah, the rear, that rear sight tower is awesome. I'm using it on one of my AKs I've got up there. You probably can't see it. But I've been trying it out on that one. Got another one I'm going to put it on. Um, so, yeah, really enjoy those. So that's it, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, appreciate your time. Now, you posted some questions on your site, too. Were there any questions that you guys saw that you wanted to fill that we didn't get to or good with everything? Uh, I think I'm pretty good, man. I think I think we covered the ones that I definitely wanted to cover. Okay. So, uh, Jeff, give all your contacts, social media, websites for all your bazillion companies. 
<laughs> you can you can you can find me at, at the best places either readyman.com you know and it's jeff at readymanteam.com if anybody's got any questions or whatnot or you can also hit me up on rats rats medical so jeff at ratsmedical.com and how often are you doing your ready man broadcast twice a week so every monday <sighs> we're in the closed group so that's ready men closed group that uh you know we've got a bunch of members in there and then we do an open uh, hour-long show on Wednesday, and that's m- four o'clock Mountain Standard Time. Very cool. And I had the the honor to be on one of those a couple of weeks ago. So thanks for having me on. Appreciate that. Which which mountain is that? <laughs> the big ones, the Wasatch Mountains. <laughs> no cap. Vince, give your contact info, and uh, again, throw those classes out there when those are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our best place to take a look at any of the stuff from Mesa Kinetic Research is going to be on our social media. It's Mesa Kinetic Research LLC on Facebook and on Instagram. It's at Vincent Buckles, which is my name. Um, email, best place to get me, Mesa Kinetic Research at gmail.com. That goes straight to me. And if you like outdated websites that are being rebuilt right now, Mesa Kinetic Research.com is our actual website. If you're in the Gulf South and interested in uh, doing some training with the, uh, AK platform or any firearms training for that matter. Uh, you got at at development group. That's at at development group on Facebook. So uh, check that out. Very cool. And go check out his new MK ultra. It's, it's pretty sweet. I can't wait to get hands on that thing. I'm excited about it. Very cool. CJ. Uh, thanks to pioneer arms Corps for making the AK corner possible. 11, 11 episodes. We've done 11 months of the AK corner. We got one more to go. And then we're going to kick it off with a whole other 12-part series of the AK Corner. Absolutely. Very good. So uh, we talked a little bit about Pioneer Arms, what's, uh, what's new and exciting there. Give the contact info for you guys. Uh, well, you know, we got our, our, our Facebook page and stuff, uh, Pioneer Arms uh, Corp. And then we you can go to our main factory page if you want to see about the guns and stuff. And that's that's uh, Pioneer Packed or Pioneer Arms uh, dash pack dot com is our main website if you want to go up and look at the different guns and stuff we have you know we we are right now we we are everybody is with this nine by 39 and i i I hasn't to say this because i don't know when it's coming to market but we just got our sot and stuff done and we are working on right now of actually bringing in the nine by 39 suppressed just like the sylvia model and so we we've been working on that with the testing and and stuff and trying to get that Trying to get that tested so we can get it in, and then of course we have some some five four five and stuff. We're going to be going down, and then uh, we're also looking at doing a AK suppressor line mm. um, that's going to come out just for the uh, just for the you know the AKs and stuff with that. Something that's uh, I don't don't want to say we're the we're the dirt market people, but we're gonna we're gonna throw it out there at, at dirt prices. But the <laughs> the difference. <laughs> The difference with our uh, dirt prices are we're gonna we're gonna do a lifetime guarantee on them, so that's wow. one of the things that that we're working toward being able to do. Very good. So you guys make sure you go show Pioneer Arms uh, some love, Instagram, Facebook, uh, and then of course Classic is carrying your your AKs and a couple other places right now. Well, Classic Classic is uh, bringing them in, and they're also the distributors, so um, they're getting them out to basically they're. They're just doing us a favor and shuffle them to their distributor network. So, I mean, local gun shops can get them through Hicks. You can get them through uh, Arm Shower. Uh, but if you just want to buy one off the street, you know, Classic is the best place to do it. And, and working with, with Ben over there at, 
I know there's been some uh, some hate toward classic and everything else as, as far as a businessman and, and doing the right thing. Uh, if you get a gun from them and there's an issue or, or any product from them or from what I've seen is, is Ben will eat the cost or whatever it is to make it right. And of course we, we, we go to the extra steps and stuff, you know, if, if we have any issues to make sure that our stuff is taken care of, but you know, go to classic and, you know, and see what they have. Very cool. You know, Oh, Hey, also real quick, while I hit it up. There's a lot of Korean, uh, $6 and 99 cents steel mags out on the market. And I'm sure that's what we were talking about earlier when I joined in, um, there's there's six thousand uh, six thousand military Polish mags getting ready to come in, and these are these are mags that were actually made in the Circle Eleven factory. And I know we we catch a lot of grief, and I think we've beat this dead horse to death about exactly Circle Eleven and how we went in and bought all the machinery and everything else from them. Uh, but there's but there's about to be for the collectors and stuff like that. We got six thousand mags that are going to be coming in here before long, and you'll be able to get those from Classic. Okay. And we're gonna and we're gonna price them right around the Korean mag, so you'll have no choice but to get a good mag. Very good. So something to look forward to there, guys. That does it for part eleven of the Talking Lead AK Corner presented by Pioneer Arms Corps. Our final episode for this series the 12 part series coming up next month so make sure you guys tune in again thanks to my guest jeff kirkham thank Vincent you Mark. buckles thank you so much thank you and as always cj appreciate it and we're sorry our good buddy uh Shwell couldn't make it uh due to a family emergency there we'll see you guys next month for another episode of the talking lead ak corner presented by pioneer arms corps